Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, my rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, my name is Morgan, and I'm the associate pastor here at Incarnation. I'm thankful to be preaching on this passage tonight from Mark chapter 7. In thinking about this passage from St. Mark's Gospel, I was thinking about the boundaries that we have as we're growing up. When we're little, we're allowed to roam around in our little pack and play. And as we grow a little bit older, we're given more space to play in. We start in a crib and then we end up in a bed. And once we grow out of that pack and play, whatever room we end up being able to roam around in, we probably had baby gates that kept us from going to all the places that we weren't supposed to go. As we grow up, we test boundaries before we get larger spaces to play in. And so maybe parents tell us, you shouldn't climb in a tree. But we do that, and then we fall and break a limb. Those small lessons here and there tell us how to approach cautiously larger boundaries over time. As we grow in our experience, we get bigger spaces and different boundaries, boundaries that move further and further out as time goes on. And while boundaries can be helpful, having inappropriately small boundaries can feel limiting because we can't see what we are actually capable of or what freedom may actually look like. In the spiritual life, religious boundaries can sometimes be the barrier between true freedom in the Holy Spirit and in being bound by sin, bondage that we might cloak in religious language. When the religious life is limited only to a small sector of our life, we run the risk of missing out on the ways that the Holy Spirit might give us life in every part of who we are. And that's the problem that arises in today's gospel reading. In this story, Jesus arrives to a confrontation with other religious leaders. The disciples hadn't been doing a great job of following what was customary in their day. They hadn't washed their hands before they were eating. Now, of course, it's fine to wash your hands before you eat. You and I wash our hands before we eat. It's always a struggle to get kids to wash their hands before they eat. That's a good thing. But the problem here is not the washing of hands. It's that the Pharisees have begun to observe an ordinance or a tradition that, like many others that developed, distracted them from the weightier commandments of God. So the problem wasn't religion in general. The problem was the way in which they applied religion to a very small part of life. They had a few small areas of life that they were super vigilant in, and then there was everything else. So when we've been doing these South Arlington dinner and dialogues on Wednesday nights, and when I've joined um, prior Alpha courses, it never fails. There's always somebody in a group who has had what they would call a religious upbringing. And when they talk about having a religious upbringing, what they're talking about is having parents who brought them to church on a Sunday. And for some reason, it didn't stick with them. The experience of going to church on Sunday for them didn't transfer to other areas of their family life or other areas of their school life or whatever. And so they became disenchanted either with a certain brand of Christianity, whether it's a denomination or something, or at worst, they became disenchanted with Christianity in general. And so it's always a joy to have those people in those discussion groups. 
it can become really easy for us to set up these markers in one small area that help us to feel like we've got it all together in the rest. And if you ask the Pharisees, what evidence do you have that you're living in faithfulness to God? They would have responded, well, we can show you our faithfulness by the ways that we adhere to the traditions that have been handed down to us. And if I came up to somebody and I asked them in general in South Arlington, you know, what, what evidence do you have that you are living faithfully to Jesus? Uh, some people might say, well, I regularly attend church. Some people might say, well, I try and pray pretty regularly. I was even at a coffee shop and somebody was telling me, I didn't even ask them. They just solicited this information about how faithful they were to Jesus. But they were telling me how one of the things they like to do is they like to go online on Sunday nights and listen to internet church. Some of us are going to give regularly to different ministries. Um, and some of us are going to go even so far as to create what's called a rule of life, where certain parts of our days and weeks are governed by rules to make sure that we're living in accordance with goals that we're setting. Those are all good things. So notice that none of those are bad, that when we talk about the Pharisees, traditions are not bad. Religion is not bad. But when we allow religion, like the Pharisees, to dictate the boundaries of only one small portion of life, it can create this false sense that everything is okay, and we're actually missing something bigger. So I was reminded of the words in uh, the Apostle James's letter. In verse 26, he says of chapter 1, If anyone thinks he's religious, and he does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So we could take that part of the verse and put it into our context, saying something like, well, if anyone thinks he or she is religious and doesn't live an examined life or have integrity in one's business dealings or make space for family and rejecting workaholism or loving one's neighbors or caring for the mar marginalized or cutting off bitterness towards others or pursuing what's virtuous, then that person's religion is worthless. If we section off religion as a category of life, it creates more blind spots in the broader areas of our lives. So Jesus comes to the Pharisees and he challenges them. He tells them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God by your tradition. You can hear the sarcasm sort of dripping. So the Pharisees had a blind spot a young person could come who is obliged to help their parents according to the Ten Commandments, and they could circumvent that responsibility by taking something that would actually benefit their parents financially and saying, Korban, it's been given to God. And by doing that, they were actually circumventing what was clearly commanded in Scripture. But there's a problem that's created. So for the person who sets it aside to God, they've made a vow. Scripture also says that somebody has to be faithful when they make a vow to God to carry it through. But what's been clearly revealed in Scripture is that one is commanded to obey father and mother. And so actually in adhering to this tradition, they had created a scenario where somebody was now disobedient to a command that was actually really clear in the Scriptures. The problem was that religion here only played a role in certain circumstances. So by keeping this very localized tradition, somebody could possibly have disobeyed what was actually clearly commanded by God. 
C.S. Lewis addresses a similar problem to this in a book called Letters to Malcolm. He talks about religion, and he says, I read in a religious paper, nothing is more important than to teach children to use the sign of the cross. Nothing? <laughs> not compassion, not veracity, nor justice? You can hear just Lewis's frustration. So for Lewis, there isn't this dichotomy of religion versus relationship. There's not this dichotomy of religious activity versus non-religious activity. The dichotomy is between religious and irreligious. The question becomes whether we're going to let the Holy Spirit breathe life into more and more of who we are, or if we're going to guard various parts of our life, telling God that he can't have that part of us. That's what it means to be religious versus irreligious. Lewis also points out that when people start to understand this problem of putting religion as a department of life, they might do one of three things. First, they may throw off religion altogether. The throwing off any sense of obligation might take a couple forms. It might be somebody saying, I don't want religion at all. Or it might just be, I don't want the ritual that's part of the Christian faith. There's a second type of group of people who realize religion can't be part, just a compartmentalization in life. They might take religion and misinterpret the way in which it's supposed to stretch over all of life. So in one sense, if we look at that from like a 30,000-foot view, this is one of the, the problems with the culture war approach to Christianity. So you see people who want to bring, say, Christian prayer back into public schools, um, or a secular leader who quotes the Bible and expects the whole country to obey it as if being an American also means you have to adopt Christianity. That's an unhelpful attempt at stretching the appearance of Christianity over all of life without actually stretching the substance of Christianity over all of life. And at a less than 30,000 foot view, at a very personal level, it becomes even more dangerous because this is where we show people our piety without actually being vulnerable with people. It reminds me a bit of somebody who says, oh, I love to bike. I'm a biker. You know, I'm a biker. That's who I am. It's my identity. But they've actually never done this before. But they have friends who have, and they've got the means to do it. And so what they do is they do a little bit of research, and they buy a really expensive bike. And then they buy all the right clothes to go biking and all the gear. And they're decked out like they're ready to ride the Tour de France. And then when they get together with a friend who really bikes, the moment they hit a small hill, they're walking. <laughs> I mean, it's good for us to build good habits of prayer and discipline. It's good for us to disciple our friends and family and to establish good habits of righteousness. But do we do that with a vulnerable disposition, asking the Holy Spirit constantly, what else can I give you? Recognizing that we haven't arrived yet. At the moment we think we've arrived, the Holy Spirit is no longer winning ground in the battle to make all of our life conform to the image of Christ. And so that's why Lewis has a third group that he talks about. This third group gets it. This, that they understand that there's, religion can't be a small part of our life. And so they respond with fear, a healthy fear. They're closest to the reality because we know from the scriptures that there are a lot of images of, of battle in the scriptures uh, that characterize the life of faithfulness. And so we realize that to live in faithfulness to Jesus is a battle. 
It's the ability to love those who don't deserve it, to advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves, to relinquish our past hurts and to hand them over to Jesus, to desire eternal life with all the passion of our spirit, to keep death daily before our eyes, to prefer nothing to the love of Christ. So Lewis does this. He draws one little region of our life and says, this is a region. And then he draws a larger region. And that larger region, uh, he says, one belongs to God and one does not yet. And about the line that separates those two regions, he says, there is, we have to admit, a line of demarcation between God's part in us and the enemy's region. But it is, we hope, a fighting line not a frontier that's fixed by agreement. The problem that the Pharisees have is that they've taken what they thought was effective and they've applied it to just one small area and region of life, believing that if they do that, everything else is going to be okay. So Jesus directly challenges that. And he says, if you do that, there are a lot of blind spots out here. And he pushes against the Pharisees, showing them how their fixation on that small area of fidelity has caused them a huge blind spot in their life of faith. Well, the fruits of somebody who is really religious in the right ways show themselves every day. Jesus tells this parable and he says, there's nothing that's outside of a person that by going in can defile him but it's the things that come out of a person that are the things that defile him. We've been in this series and we've, talking, we've been talking about walking with Jesus. And we have seen in the life of Jesus so much beauty. The ways that he shows us his goodness, the ways that he cares for the poor, the ways that he confidently pushes in humility against skewed societal norms, the ways he corrects in humility, gentleness, and kindness, and in the selfless way that he gives his final breath to deliver his people from sin, from death, and from Satan. Jesus's life was a religious life where in his freedom, he dutifully sets aside all of his rights and privileges as God to redeem all of who we are in our humanity. So religious observance is way more than just the washing of hands. Even though good traditions actually do form good habits and patterns and ways of thinking, and if we were to rightly use them, they are good in the broader plan of God. But what defiled the Pharisees and what defiles us is what comes out of us, not because it somehow taints us, but because it shows us those places that we still need to be fighting. What are those places that the Holy Spirit still needs to fight for within us? that we need to hand over to him. So we should be truly religious, allowing the Holy Spirit to breathe life progressively into every part of our existence. We don't need to make an agreement for some frontier zone, but to let that space between religious and irreligious be a fighting line that's actively moving as victory takes place over and over again. Jesus can do this, and he will do this. It's kind of like St. Augustine's words, where he says, command what you will, but grant what you command. 
So as you think through this week, one piece of reading that might be helpful is the fourth chapter of St. Benedict's Rule or something else that helps you focus on the areas of life like an examination of the week. And in that quiet space with the Lord, ask him where he might gain victory. The Holy Spirit would love to fill that space and to continue to refine us more and more into the image of Christ. And as we close, there's this prayer that was helpful for me from Cardinal Newman. And uh, some of the language is archaic, but hang with me in that. It's beautiful and very helpful. And I would just love to pray this over us as we close. Oh, by thy resurrection, raise us up unto newness of life, supplying to us frames of repentance the God of peace who did bring again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, our Lord Jesus Christ, perfect us in every good work to do his will, working in us what's acceptable before him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. Thou didst send down on thy apostles in this day thy thrice Holy Spirit, Withdraw not thou the gift, O Lord, from us, but renew it in us day by day. We ask thee for it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.